welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle, and this is the second part of a two-part series with Professor Tamla Summers, known to many of you for his co-hosting of the Very Bad Wizards podcast. So we start in this episode with me responding to a challenge from Tamla that he views moral consequentialism as not only incoherent, but dishonest. That consequentialists are always trying to look for reasons to justify pre-existing morality and a I guess the critique would go too scared to really have the courage of their convictions to embrace counterintuitive positions. This was a little barb that caused some drama on Twitter. Uh, Greg Caruso, a professor who joined us on a prior episode, saw this online and uh, felt his honour was insulted and challenged Tamla to a duel on Twitter. Now, some people interpreted this as... Uh, a light mocking, a, a riffing off Tamler's uh, book Defending Honor Culture. I'm not so convinced, and I'm concerned that I, I may someday see online a, a brutal justice porn video of the two of them really viciously thrashing out their differences. But uh, in general, the reception to the last episode was, was really good. I forgot, I guess, just how engaged the very Bad Wizards fan base is, so it was fun, for instance, to see some of the quotes from the episode popping up on the Very Bad Wizards No Context fan page. That was definitely uh, fun and funny. I'd forgotten I'd even said some of those things, so thanks for that. And all kidding aside, I think this has been a really good conversation that I had with Tamla, and in this second part in particular, a really good sustained disagreement where we were coming from very different views and were able to sort of really sound out in real time what, what was bothering us about the other person's position, which I think both in regular life and in academia we don't do enough of, either politeness or the narrowness of academic research specialties, means that we don't have these big, broad conversations about what is ultimately moral truth, and what's the point of doing moral philosophy? I I actually had just... I record interviews often multiple on the same day, and so I recorded this having just got off the phone with Theresa Bejan from Oxford University, and we had a conversation all about how to have a civil disagreement, how to continue talking to someone when you feel like you might be riled or offended or upset. So I was having just talked to one of the world's leading scholars of political civility. I was well set up to really get down to brass tacks and have a really great exchange with coming someone coming from a very different framework to myself, or at least that's, I hope, what your read of the episode is. Just quickly before we get into it, if you're joining the show recently, if you've joined us through Very Bad Wizards, or through Theresa Bejan or Greg Caruso, or any of our recent guests, I want to just run through a few things real quick you can do to support the show. All of our growth so far has been organic. That's come from people sharing it on their own social media. So if you like the show, at a minimum, please do pass it on, share with your friends so they can see it as well. Something else you can do is because these are quite, this is quite a niche product, you might have the thought, oh, I bet so-and-so would really like that. 
Well, in which case, tag so-and-so so that they see it when they open up their Twitter or Facebook or what have you. You can also leave reviews of the show. This helps us get ranked on iTunes, and that helps us get out there to more people. And finally, you can also sponsor it in a more monetary basis. We suggest a donation of two bucks a show. If you think the episode you're about to listen to is worth a couple of dollars, it would be great to have them. And the analogy I've used is if you're getting as much enjoyment and stimulation from an episode or as much bitterness and challenge as you would from a cup of coffee, then we suggest sponsoring it on that basis. Or if that seems like a weird amount to you, then what's an item of equivalent value and sponsor it on that basis? And it's super easy to do that on Patreon. You can find the links to that on our website, as well as the links to follow us on social media, subscribe, a whole bunch of ways to follow the show. And that's politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So please do share, tag friends, leave reviews, and sponsor us. And again, to everyone who already does any of those things, a big, genuine thank you. You're making the show possible. Apart from that, let's get right to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you, for the second time, Professor Tamla Summers. point, um, let me give a slightly more charitable account of consequentialism, is if what you're doing is saying, we know that the outcome is this theory of justice or this intuition, how does consequentialism get us there? And you're forever just trying to reinflate the balloon of deontological or value morality. Then yeah, consequentialism does look to be a bit dishonest. I find the more interesting question to be, will consequentialism get you there? Which it won't for... It it will for a lot of things. Um, It will for, like, I think a lot of human rights, like prohibitions on torture, stuff like that. You can can get to that as, like, a second-order utilitarian principle. But you don't get to desert. You don't get to retribution. And I don't know that you get to a prohibition on like, serious collective punishment. So one question I find interesting is to use consequentialism as, like, an analytic tool to say, do you get there from consequences alone? And if not, what else are you adding to the mix and how do you justify it? Does that make sense? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think... And I, you know... The thing is, it's so hard to evaluate whether you do get somewhere for a consequentialist perspective. But the question is also, why do you want to? Why do you want to get uh, uh, the consequences to happen to come out that torturing is always wrong or that collective punishment is always wrong? Not for consequentialist reasons, because you don't know yet whether... There'll be consequentialists that the, the, the utility calculus will produce that. So there has to be something else that is even driving you to want 
the consequences to match this particular morally held position that you have. Which, which brings you to the question of what weight do we place on our moral intuitions? I think our credence has to be fairly low, right? <laughs> However counterintuitive that might be, you just correctly pointed out that this idea of the individual being like the sole locus of moral responsibility is quite unique in history and in culture, but we feel it very strongly. And I always point out what like, like hardcore patriarchy and like oppression of women would have been completely morally obvious to most people throughout all of history. So our, our moral intuition, and, and also just even, even never mind is that the correct intuition or not, there's just been different intuitions and people feel them very differently. So it's a bit like the atheist critique of religion that they can't all be right. Um, yeah. So I think our credence in our feeling that torture must be wrong shouldn't, like, the fact that we have that intuition in and of itself shouldn't be conclusive that that's what we're working towards. It shouldn't be conclusive, right. I think we have to take our intuition seriously because they're, they're all we have. We don't, uh, unless you believe that you can rationally derive certain general ethical principles, and I don't, I've, ne I've never seen a successful attempt at doing that, um, you have to start somewhere, but, and I think intuitions, feelings are a place to start, but then what has to happen, I think is instead of thinking about this as individuals and instead of thinking about it, about individual acts, think about it as a community and, and, and introduce a dialogue and come up with some sort of more general, but certainly not universal, account uh, that is the best reflection of your most deeply held values. I, I just don't know what other alternative there is. Um, you know, I'm not, I, I think Kant's arguments for the categorical imperative are unsuccessful, kind of obviously unsuccessful. And uh, so given that, you know, the argument is supposed to establish them, and if it doesn't, then, you know, to the extent that we share, that we, that we find the elements of his ethics to be intuitive, well, at least admit that that's the thing that is drawing us to it. It's not rational. It's not the arguments. It's this is something that this is a conviction that we have. Now, I don't think just because something, a, an intuition or a, a conviction is culturally local or historically recent, I don't think that means that we have to dismiss it. I think it just, we no, it, shouldn't it's a, it's a imagine... It's a question of credence, right? It's like, how, how much does that count? Um, if you think of it in true false ways, yeah, but I, I just, I, I think that's not the way I would want to think about it. I don't think it's credence in the sense that, you know, of like, is there a God or is, are there black holes or something is the right, I think it's, all right, what's the best way we're going to organize our lives and our community and, and, and what's the best kind of of life and that will reflect my core values it's, it's i think credence is a little bit of a, a misleading way of thinking about it I, I started out as kind of a 
in my dissertation, I defended a view very similar to Greg Caruso's skepticism about free will and moral responsibility and a kind of utilitarianism that went along with that. But, um, but I've become more and more convinced by expressivist accounts of morality where our moral judgments are better thought of as expressions of attitudes than they are, you know, true, false propositions. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we want to get lost in the sort of deep and sometimes irrecoverable hole of, like, matter ethics. I mean, I think for me, I'm, I'm sort of channeling Will McCaskill when I, um, um, who I talked to recently when I used the, the word credence. Um, and then I was going to say epistemic confidence, but I'm still being... Just, just what can we be more... more What's the more fundamental intuition? And I think there is something to be said from the consequentialist side. The the intuition that we have consciousness, like I think, therefore I am, is pretty fundamental. And then the idea that there's different sensations and feelings within consciousness and that we can meaningfully make distinctions within that space, however imperfectly, it seems pretty epistemically confident to me. And then if you sort of map forward, that leads you to sort of like some sort of like hedonism and you can sort of build up from there. That seems to me, I'm more confident that that's right than that our moral intuitions at this particular time in history about how to get the most good or to do whatever it is we're thinking of doing are right. Now, that's not to say there couldn't be another source of value, but just that is a source of value that we can be quite confident in. Yeah. And I think um, we also have reason, we have special reason sometimes to mistrust certain intuitions that we have, maybe for evolutionary reasons, maybe for reasons of personal history. Um you know, you might have reason to, you know, we have all these biases, biases that are sometimes unconscious and, and, and importantly, were we made aware of them, we would then reject the intuition as the result of this bias. I think that way, that sort of, that kind of evaluation, I think is very important um, and it's very much in line, I think, with I, I, we want to have Will McCaskill on the show. Is keep threatening to do it. Yeah, I know. We could do, but we got to do it. And it's my fault. I, I'm I'm the one who's supposed to email him. Um, but you know, I, him, Peter Singer, Josh Green, they they love to debunk all the intuitions that we have besides the consequentialist or utilitarian ones. Um, and I think sometimes that works, but sometimes it definitely doesn't work. Actually, when the rubber meets the road, so to bring it back to collective punishment, Mm -hmm. um, why is just say it works. And that seems like an empirically unsubstantiated statement, but just say it works that you can deter terrorists by shooting their families. Right. Yeah. Why? Like, 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 where are you standing to say that's wrong? And I think, I don't want to speak for, 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 for Will, but the move he'd make there is kind of peculiar in that he, he would get around it by the idea of, like, moral uncertainty. He'd say, 
Well, yeah, maybe there's not from a consequentialist view, but I am granting some credence to the view that I might be wrong about morality and that deontology might be right, in which case there'd be very strong reasons not to do that. Now, that's an odd way of squaring the circle, but it's, it's a coherent one. Um, so you can make that move. Yeah, it's coherent if you think those are the only two alternatives. So what would, you, you're coming from a more like virtue ethicist, I can pronounce words, a virtue ethicist approach. What would be the line you would draw on shooting the families of terrorists, assuming you wouldn't be down for this? Well, so, I mean, there's something that's sort of funny about this whole debate, because we kill people who have not personally harmed us all the time, right? We have drones right now that going over and there's so much collateral damage um, that comes from our engagement in these other countries that it's sort of funny. And I know this has to difference between a side effect or uh, unintentional uh, versus intentional. But there is something troubling about the fact that nobody seems to care uh, of all the people that all the innocent people that have died in our attempts to keep us safe from terrorism, but then are appalled by what Trump suggested, which would target a much a, a a tiny number of people in comparison to all the people who have already been killed by our actions. No, I would say that that's more a reason to be sceptical, and I think we need to be more than sceptical. I think we need to be sort of morally opposed to what we're doing with drones. Yes, so I agree, and I think, you know, and I think this is true with the torture. I think that, you know, the way a virtue ethicist might approach this is what kind of country do we want to be? Do we want to be the kind of country that tortures people because we think there's the tiniest chance that they might, you know, keep us a little safer? Do we want to be the kind of country that or the kind of culture that won't accept refugees because of the infinitesimal chance that they'll start a homegrown terror cell or something like that? Or do we want to be a hospitable country that helps people who are in need and who are fleeing the very people that we're fighting against? And you wouldn't think of it in terms of obligations or duties necessarily or general principles. You would think of it as this is who we are. This is the kind of uh, country we aspire to have. And these are the ideals we should live up to. And so I, I don't know. To me, that's that's sometimes a more helpful way of thinking of it than to try to sort of dissect the various principles and, and, and intuitions and why we have them and, you know, tr- you know, try to explain away some, leave the others. Um, it, that, that just gets too clinical for me. And I think ultimately mm. it's, it's, it, it, it often is an empty exercise. Yeah, I, 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 I think I remain um, more, more, more sanguine about the idea of trying to make like, like a more analytic approach to morality. But, but moving on from metaphysics, if, if we're like skeptical of shooting the families of terrorists, there would be cases on the flip side, though, where you might be punished for, for something that, that, that is the action of another that you would view as like morally correct in some way. So I'm thinking of like... Um, 
your team gets disqualified in sports um, and you maybe lose a lot of income through this um, because another person on your team was cheating. That, that yeah. would feel roughly right, right? Yeah. Or you're a batter in baseball and the pitcher hits you because your pitcher hit their opposing player. Uh, a lot of times when that happens, now sometimes the batters think that the retaliation was unwarranted, but a lot of the time the batters will just shrug it off and go to first base because they're they'll say, yeah, I kind of had that coming because of what the uh, our our pitcher did. Not me. I'm not a pitcher, but I'm not the pitcher. But um, but yeah, it's 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 just. It's part of the honor code of baseball that I'm the one that has to suffer the consequences for that. And I think uh, that's often, again, a kind of the right attitude to have. It's a it's a touchy balance, but it leads to a lot of it leads to a lot of solidarity within the teams. It leads to a lot of drama and excitement in the game and debate uh, about, you know, what codes are, uh, do we want to keep and what needs to evolve? And so, yeah, I mean, and I think there's a lot of times where we feel, even though we haven't done anything wrong, we completely find it understandable that we're going to suffer the consequences. And if we start making excuses or we start, uh, you know, complaining about it, that can often be, you know that that can seem uh, non-virtuous. How far do you think it matters? So I could find a way to get some level of individual choice into this this account without necessarily committing to it with both feet. Is I could say something like it seems to me that it, I, I'm having an intuition that it might matter the extent to which you chose the group whose actions you are being punished for. So in other words, I choose to be on a sports team. I choose to join the Marines. I, in some sense, even you choose, like, what national identity. Like, I'm, I'm a Brit living in America, and I sort of feel more American now. Um, you don't choose your race. You don't choose your gender. Um, to, to what extent could you maybe start to pass these differences in terms of the, the voluntariness of the association? I have that intuition, although I have just said my intuitions shouldn't count for that much. But I do have an intuition that that would seem to count for something. Yeah, I think it should count for something. But some people try to make it count for everything. So, you know, if I take pride in my daughter being valedictorian, really what I'm taking pride in is the fact that I raised her in a proper way so that she uh, could uh, achieve the award that she achieved. And then I think you're overthinking it. You're over-intellectualizing it. No, I'm, I, I, it's not that I'm giving, that I'm feeling proud of myself. I'm feeling proud of her and I'm feeling proud of her um, for what she did, not for my role in what she did. Could we summarize um, crudely a lot of your like approach and strategy here and method as stop thinking about it that much. It's, it's people and people's interactions with each other. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, my favorite paper, philosophy paper of all time is Freedom and Resentment by P.F. Strawson, which the central message is philosophers over-intellectualize the facts about free will and moral responsibility. Really, this is just about human relationships and practices and attitudes and how we relate to one another. And you start bringing in determinism and all these metaphysics, these fancy metaphysical theses you are um yeah but it's so much fun you do not (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean uh, i i i have fully i'm fully converted by that perspective now because i think it's it is fun it does lead to a lot of games and puzzles and counterexamples but it also is bloodless and too abstract and you lose as you said just now, we're people. You lose the humanity of of the you know something that's so central how we actually relate to each other. I think there's a bit of a dialectic here. Sort of talking about using common sense words. This sort of an interaction of opposing truths would be my view, which is I think like like we I I I, I do retain the view that we sort of want to hammer this out intellectually and try and get our various intuitions, which are not coherent at all and try to make some sort of sense of them. But then that also has to be an in an interaction with the reality of our lived experience and that we're embedded in relationships and social structures and that we feel a certain way about them. I don't... I, I guess we differ in that... It feels like either side alone would kind of feel like one hand clapping to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I I have a lot of sympathy with what you just said. I don't think these considerations should bear no weight. The kind of more analytic approach, the theorizing impulse, the more systematic approach, I don't think it should bear no weight. I think the reason why I can sometimes come off more extreme than I actually feel is because I'm a philosopher and the people I deal with are so far on the other extreme, the systematizing, develop a theory, uh, look at, you know, try to universalize, come up with general abstract principles that I, it's my sort of dogmatic uh, Strassonian or Wittgensteinian or whatever it is uh, position is in some ways a re- reaction against that because I do find it to be a destructive force within philosophy. So, as a final thought, how would you feel about someone like John Stuart Mill, who I, I sort of continually reference on the podcast, in that he's coming out of a tradition which is Bentham and his father, which is, like you say, bloodless. Like, like Bentham is brilliant but bloodless, and people right. people called him down for it to no end in his day. Um, that there was a withering review of uh, his father's book on government, and this is something you could say about Rawls and a lot of contemporary political theory, where Macaulay, Macaulay writes, "Quote." Ah, here we have an elaborate treatise on government, from which, but for one or two passing allusions, it does not appear that its author is aware that governments exist amongst men. And, but then Mill, I feel like, when you read on liberty, has fully absorbed that. And he's locating his arguments within societies as they exist, and he's appealing to the heart as well as the head. But he's never a 
abandoning, he's moving beyond this narrow Benthamite conception of utility, but he's never abandoning the, 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 the overall grounding within an analytic framework and a consequentialist framework. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I like Mill. Uh, I think he, that balance that he strike, that he tries to strike, that you're referring to is sometimes more successful than others. So, you know, when he starts trying to distinguish between the higher order pleasures and the lower pleasures, um, you know, now it just seems like, wait a minute, you want, you want it to be true that people like actually derive more happiness from opera than from sitting around eating and having sex. And so you're going to call that a higher order pleasure that, you know, Socrates would, that it's better to enjoy even when it's unsatisfied than uh, to get all these lower pleasures satisfied. And it just seems like special pleading to me, at least there, that at least be honest that you're abandoning the utilitarian perspective in this specific instance in order to um, defend some other kind of value that isn't fully reducible to um, the greatest happiness principle. And I think on liberty has some of this as well. You could certainly imagine that the utility calculus would, would, um, would yield um, an outcome where certain opinions should be stifled. Now, I'm actually very convinced by his arguments in On Liberty, but I'm not convinced that the ultimate grounds for them are utilitarian. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how they cohere with his utilitarianism. Uh, because he seems to be an absolutist about them, and you, if you're a utilitarian, you can't, you can only be an absolutist about one thing. It seems like, uh, and I know that there are rule utilitarians and all of that, but that always seems like, again, you're trying to have it both ways. Now, if you have a, if if you want to have it both ways, but admit that there is a certain lack of coherence in your ethical uh, worldview, then I'm, then I'm all for that. Cause I think, you know, we, over, we overvalue all total consistency in our ethics. But, but I, yeah, the, it's the, when I don't like mill, it's when I suspect that he's being disingenuous, whether consciously or unconsciously in again fudging the numbers so that the things that he likes free free speech principles and opera and you know reading literature and it are are also happen to be the things that will lead to the greatest happiness for the greatest number so let's start with the higher and lower pleasures. Yeah, I agree. That's a that's a clumsy distinction, right? And also, I think I think there's an overemphasizing of the intellectual aspects of our our, our experience, um, which philosophers are pr so prone to do because, of course, that's what philosophers are, right? right. Um, yeah, absolutely. With that being said, so so I think on the like, oh, well, the higher pleasures are going to the opera and the lower pleasures are eating and having sex. I, 
I would personally maintain there's a good many higher pleasures to be had in eating and, and having sex, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, and I don't, I don't mean that wholly facetiously. I, I, I think, like, our, our appreciation of, 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 of cuisine and of sexual experience is, is not purely animal. I think we experience, I mean, I don't know, phenomenolog <laughs> phenomenologically, but I think that that is some of the most valuable stuff in life, actually, sometimes, not yeah. to sound. Well, to be fair to Mill, you know, he's writing before the foodie yes. revolution and also before Pornhub, so, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, one, one wonders what he would make of both of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but but with that said, I, I what I read Mill is saying, or, or not, never mind what this is. The, the historical Mill said, like what what I take away from that is that that the, the Bentham is wrong, and that it doesn't all reduce down to a single metric. In that, the, the, what I would take away from that is that there's non-comparable moral goods. So. I think something like Saxon opera are a perfect example of that, like which is truly yeah. more valuable. Well, it's, it's just a bloody stupid question, actually. Right. Or incommensurable. All, or, yeah, yeah, I mean, in, in um, you, you could even, like, if you wanted to be bloodless, you could model it in economic terms and just saying they're non-substitutable goods. Um, but th th that's just a wonky way of saying there's not... There's not a unit of conversion. There's there's no number of 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 uh, there's there's no number of orgasms that equal a night at the opera or vice versa, <laughs> right. right? And it would be weird if there were. And then what what you get on the basis of that is a sort of like pluralistic hedonism, um, which I think does bring you into the moral universe of on liberty quite neatly. In the, I, I think another way of putting it is a Henry Sidgwick's phrase, which is a bit nicer than utilitarian, of universal benevolence. So it's psychologically impossible for you to feel how you feel about your daughter for every member of the society. But you can sort of imagine what societal rules you would construct if you did feel that way. So for one thing, you wouldn't want people to suffer. I think that's actually an underrated part of the utilitarian calculus, is like... Like, like, how much would you have to be paid to undergo dental surgery without anaesthetic, right? Like, like suffering is huge, and that's a big part of our moral calculations that I think we, we neglect to, 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 to our detriment. You wouldn't want people to suffer. And then what do you want for your daughter? You'd want her to do, I think you mentioned, a recital or whatever. But you would sort of... You, you wouldn't want your daughter to be a great violinist, say in and of that because of itself, because she might not want to be a violinist. You would want her to, in Mill's sense, choose her own life, think about it, be able to make her own mistakes in some ways, but within some sort of framework that would prevent the worst outcomes to her. And so, so then when you take that sort of like pluralistic hedonism and sort of map it up to all of society, you end up in a moral universe that looks a lot like what he's talking about on liberty when he, he self-consciously rejects Bentham and says, I'm talking about utility in the largest sense as the permanent interests of man as a progressive being. And that seems to me, not just intuitive, but in some sense, if we're allowed to use the word correct. And yeah. I don't know that, that like... 
that like like is is he using this utility math to get to a vision of society that he finds attractive? I mean, I I don't know for the historical mill, but there there, there is um, I think a vision of society where that's attractive, simply working up from a sort of pluralistic hedonism that that to me at least feels coherent and doesn't feel like special pleading. I, I talked for a bit. I love your response. Yeah, I mean. So, again, I may have come off as overly harsh on Mill. I think you could read On Liberty, which, you know, I teach sometimes. And with the exception of very small fraction of it, you know, not even know that he's defending a a utilitarian or, or not even know that he's a utilitarian and he's defending it on those grounds. Because he really doesn't really appeal to that. He sort of mentions it, I think, in the first chapter and then pretty much drops it. And the arguments sort of stand or fall on their own. And the arguments themselves are plausible. And now, in terms of whether they fit a larger pluralistic, hedonistic uh, kind of account, yeah, I mean, it, it, I could see that working and I could see it. Um, especially in On Liberty not being special pleading again because he's he's really just making arguments that stand or fall on their own. And so whatever the broader account is, is it's 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 not required that you endorse that to endorse the arguments in On Liberty, at least as I understand them. So um so I guess I'm on board with you, I'm definitely on board with a kind of pluralism about values. Um, I don't know if I would call it a pluralistic hedonism, I but think definitely I, pluralism. I think I just invented that word on the fly. Yeah. That term on the but, fly, I'm not referencing anything there. And, and you know, <laughs> like the kind of whatever hedonism I, I would endorse would definitely be a pluralistic version of it. Um, yeah, and then so to the extent that that's what he's doing, and I am maybe overemphasizing the the sort of strict greatest happiness principle, you know, uh, overriding or underlying principle uh, in his work. I, you know, then if that's true, then I uh, then then you're absolutely right. I'm not a Mill scholar. I. So I, I I can't say whether. So I would trust you on that. No, I mean I'm not a scholar of anything. Um, I just and I, I don't. I'd I'd be skeptical to make the claim that that's how the historical mill saw it. I merely just say that's what I take. Yeah. From from and, that work. Yeah. So we might not be too far apart on the pluralism side of things. Um, maybe to the extent that we disagree your pluralism might lean more heavily on utilitarian considerations than mine would. Although I certainly, they, they play a large role and certainly need to be taken seriously in, in all moral evaluation. Um, I think there's nobody, I, I wouldn't find a view compelling that said consequences have no role, right? Right. And I'm, I'm even wary of me. I wouldn't make the claim that they're the, only thing, I would make the claim that I'm comparatively confident in them as moral reasons. 
and I'm yeah. less confident in certainly deontological concerns, and I think I just need to think through value ethics a little bit more. Um, yeah. And especially preventing suffering, as you said, is it just seems like a, a principle that should it, that that should always factor into our moral evaluation. Can I make? Um, I, I, I'm increasingly doing longer podcasts and then just chopping them into. Can I make one final point? Just because you hear it so often from people who aren't convinced by consequentialism about this idea that you're just like reinflating the balloon. You know the goal, and then you're just sort of cheating to get back there. Um, yeah. I think there's reasons why we might want to be cautious about even assuming a hard consequentialist framework where you grant no credence at all to um, any independent source of value. I think there's reasons why you might want to be cautious about like actually practically uh, stopping enforcing rules that seem to be non-utility maximizing, which is just sort of like the precautionary principle. Like, yeah, you might do the sums, but the sums are mind-blowingly complicated and you may well get it wrong. And like like you said, does utilitarianism justify the f free speech thing? I think Mill's arguments are compelling, but you have to admit there's any amount of built-in uncertainty there. Um, yeah. So I think you, you might start to approach and think about moral rules from utilitarian perspective, but then you would still want to be cautious about actually going and changing them. And you could build this into a more formal model of moral uncertainty like Will McCaskill does, or you could just say, let's first do no harm. With that said, I think, well, I know you, you're very passionate about criminal justice reform. I think that's a key instance of a moral intuition we have that just doesn't cash out in utilitarian terms, and we, we actually need to start walking away from. I think there's cases where if it doesn't reinflate, maybe it's actually because it's ethically suspect. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'd be interested in exploring more this idea of how, and maybe I'll talk about it with Will McCaskill, how this moral uncertainty is, is supposed to justify, you know, deontological rules being this, the default, um, the default principle that you go with. The, I guess the, my question would be along the lines of why is that the default if you're truly a utilitarian? Since they, uh, there are often rules that are in place for highly suspect reasons themselves. Yeah. And I, I don't think Will, I mean, you should just talk to him because he's going to defend it much more articulately than I will. I don't think he would say default, though. I think he'd want to push back there. I, I, I think he'd say that there's, there's, it's a middle ground. It's not that you're rejecting them outright, but it's not like you're starting with the measles. You're saying, you're saying there's some possibility of this being correct. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, let, should we pause there? Yeah. Uh, I have to go. There's a workshop in in town that i am supposed to go to so uh but thank you this has been a lot of fun no i really appreciate you having you on i've listened to your podcast forever so to be able to like talk to not only talk to you but disagree with you and like throw stuff at you it's been really really uh it's been really good thank you for doing this yeah i've enjoyed it thank you um before you go anyway twitter whatever you want people to follow you on uh at 
Tamler. You can follow me also the podcast at Very Bad Wizards. And um, TamlerSummers.com is my website that's under construction. But you can see a few things about me there. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. One quick update that's transpired pretty much in real time as I'm recording this is it seems like Tamler did indeed take my suggestion. He's let me know that Will will be appearing on his podcast, Very Bad Wizards. So if you want to hear the conversation continue, that'll be out about a week from now. So I'll totally be checking that out. You should as well. And if you have thoughts or comments on the conversation we just had, please do leave them on our social media. You can also direct message me. If you think I'm getting this wrong with my sort of pluralistic hedonism, as I coined the term, please do reach out and let me know. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. And if you, if people make some really substantive points, I'll happily invite them on the podcast, whether or not they're, you know, someone who studies this professionally, or just someone like me who takes an interest and is, you know, engaged by these arguments. Next week, I will be doing the first part of a three-part, we're getting into these multi-parters, a three-part series with someone I think can credibly be called the world's greatest living public intellectual, Professor Orlando Patterson, who is the author of many, many books about slavery, freedom, race relations, sociology. He's a New York Times columnist and an author. And we'll be talking about how we understand what slavery is and how the history of slavery from classical times through to the present has shaped the modern world as we know it. I'm really excited to bring you that conversation and the first part of that will be next week. As always, if you're enjoying the show, please do forward it or tag friends to help us get the word out there. Leaving positive reviews on iTunes also helps with that. And if you've listened to more than a couple of episodes, then consider sponsoring it. Um, whatever helps, and I'm genuinely grateful to anyone who does any of those things. You're making the show possible, so thank you. If you're interested in any of the conversations that I referenced in this episode, you can go on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, and you can check out my interview with Professor Will McCaskill, with Professor Greg Caruso and Professor Teresa Bejan. They're all up there, as well as many, many others, so please do check that out. You can also like and subscribe that way. That's it for this week, and I hope you'll join us again next week for the first part of my interview with Orlando Patterson. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) 